0: Tonight, what I want to do is just talk a little bit about interpretation, because for the vast majority of the conversation that people have about this issue, fundamentally, the most, most people are going to come down to this issue, well, the Bible says. Have you, anybody familiar with that phrase? Well, the Bible says. So let's get to the Bible, and let's talk about this term, hermeneutics. Everybody say hermeneutics. Now, hermeneutics is fundamentally the art and the science of interpretation. Now, hermeneutics is not just something that we do with the Bible. Hermeneutics is something that we do all the time everywhere. This is a very famous or well-known picture and image uh, that has been made into a children's book, Duck Rabbit, and it all depends on your perspective, your bias, uh, how you look, how you see things. Is it a duck or is it a rabbit? And the whole point is, What it is is almost irrelevant compared to what it is that you think it is. That's all part of hermeneutics, interpreting this. Uh, Interpretation is, hermeneutics is also part of psychology. Um, you use this to try to determine where somebody is coming from, their biases or their intentions or their feelings or things that are influencing how they think. This is a Rorschach test. Uh, Many of you are very familiar with this. This one's not so exciting to you, so this one might be a little bit more exciting to you. By the way, did you notice the little TIE fighters down here and the X-wings right here? Okay, never mind. We'll move on. (laughs) Hermeneutics is also at play whenever you're doing translation. If you ever talk to somebody that works at the U.N., and has to do translation work, when somebody is speaking from another language and you have to translate into a a receptor language, they are doing hermeneutics. They're doing interpretation. They're doing this hard work. And when you talk to these people, you recognize it's not about listening to a word and translating it into another word. It is far deeper than that. It's about meaning, nuance, idioms, what that person was ultimately trying to convey translating that in your head and trying to find language that is equal to that in the receptor language. So hermeneutics is uh, used all over the place. It's something that we do all the time. For example, how many of you speak another language? And if you speak another language, try translating this phrase, costs an arm and a leg into your receptor language. Okay? Try translating the phrase, not playing with a full deck, into the receptor language. This is called hermeneutics, the art and science of interpreting. This is a very good example, one of my favorites. What does this phrase mean? I am mad about my flat. What does it mean? I have a flat tire. I'm really upset that I got a flat tire. But some of you interpreted it that way because you live in the United States. If you had lived in England, what does this exact same phrase mean? I'm super excited about the apartment that I just got. Now, here's what you need to understand. This is interpretation. This is hermeneutics. This is what we do all the time. And this exact same phrase, nothing has changed about the wording. But depending upon where you live, your country of origin, your ethnicity, the exact same language could mean something radically different. Are you with me? What does this mean? Book. What does that mean? Some of you are like, ah, It's pages, it's got bindings, it's got words in it. Now, what does it mean? We've got to book it. Now what does it mean? The officer said to book him. (laughs) Now what does it mean? The judge threw the book at him. Now what does it mean? I need to book my flight. Now what does it mean? He does everything by the book. Now here's what's important to know about interpretation. And, And I'm setting this all up because we're going to get to the scriptures. Here's a word. And some of us know exactly what that means. And when we come to that word, we know exactly what it means. But here's the problem. The word actually doesn't mean anything. The word gets its meaning from the things that we put around it, from the culture that we bring, from the experience that we have. And if you do the hard work Of hermeneutics which is the art and the science of interpretation you recognize that these aren't five different definitions they're five different interpretations and fundamentally what makes meaning happen is this one word context what we put around it what we bring to it and what we bring to it is known by our lenses every single one of us in this room have a culture set, have a language set, have a bias set, have an experience set. And when we come to words on a page, we are coming with that set. And all of that influences how we read those passages. Very much like the phrase, I am mad about my flat. (laughs) And here's the problem. And again, you're going to walk away with more questions. Here's the problem. We are very fallible beings. We don't get things right all the time. We see things that we think we see, but we don't actually see what we're supposed to be seeing all the time. We have blind spots. Raise your hand if you saw the mistake. How many of you, the rest of you saw the and the? So when we talk about interpretation, scholars and people who write about this, and if you're an English teacher, you know all about this because you do this with your students. What you bring and how you read greatly affects the meaning that you pull out of these texts. Scholars also talk about context being both rich and poor. Let me explain to you what that means. There are some pieces of literature that are context-rich and context-poor, meaning that the writing itself doesn't necessarily come with a lot of context in and of itself. A children's book. Would you say a children's book requires a lot of contextual understanding to understand that book? No. A children's book is context-poor. Green eggs and ham. You don't necessarily need to know how the ham got here or what Dr. Seuss, what era he was living in to understand green eggs and ham. A cookbook, context-rich or context-poor context poor. You don't need to know a lot of background to really understand what rosemary is or one cup. Well, if you're in England metric system, okay, that's a whole other problem. The Constitution of the United States, context rich or context poor? Extremely rich. And part of the reason why we have the political debate that we have in our country is because some people don't always understand that there's huge, vast amounts of context. If you don't understand American history, if you don't understand all of those things and why these amendments came to be, then you may be be missing a lot of the meaning and the nuance. Personal letter. Context rich or context poor. Extremely rich. There's a history... There's a relationship. There's unspoken signs that go back and forth. And what's fascinating about personal letter being context-rich is, what's the Bible full of? A lot of personal letters. The scriptures that we're going to talk about are extremely context-rich. They come with a lot of background context and information that if we don't understand and we don't take into consideration in the reading of that text, we may be missing what it is. When it comes to the issue of homosexuality or sexual identity, some people say that there are six main passages. Genesis 19.5, Leviticus 18.22, Leviticus 20.13, uh, Romans 1.26-27, 1, 1 Corinthians 6.9, 1 Timothy 1.10. We obviously don't have time. Again, to go over all these. What I'd like to share with you is a reading of Romans chapter 1 and of 1 Corinthians 9 that helps us understand, wait a second, there is some context here to how we interpret these passages. And what we're going to learn here fundamentally applies to every other writing and reading that we do. I'm going to have to talk fast. I apologize. We're going to speed through this. Romans chapter 1. This is one of the most challenging and difficult passages when it comes to this particular topic, and what I'm going to do is share with you an alternative reading. By alternative, I mean a reading that some people may not have heard before. Most people have heard the position that is non-affirming. Some people would call it a condemning View A position that holds that Romans 1 is very clearly against what some people call alternative sexual expressions. So what I'd like to share with you is a way of reading the passage that is the other side. And again, I'm not necessarily taking a position. It's for the point of illustrating how this context and interpretation works. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Now, at this particular point, there's a lot of questions that hopefully we are asking. Number one, what translation is this? This is the NIV translation. We're going to get to why that's important later on. Number two, what fundamentally is this passage all about? Is this about sexual morality, or is this about idolatry? And if it's primarily about idolatry, then is this sexual prohibition that Paul is talking about here a prohibition a proscriptive prohibition meaning therefore no nobody should ever do this or is it an argument of saying as a result of your idolatry this is what has happened and it's descriptive of what they would have known about has happened back then. So there's, at, at this particular point, there's all sorts of questions that we should be asking about the text. If we just simply read this text without any of this, that context and we only use our perspective, then we're going to interpret this phrase only in the way that we see it, right? That's the art and the science of interpretation. But there's all these questions that come up. What does the word natural mean? Some people believe that the word natural means according to the biology that was set forth in Genesis chapter 1. That's what's known as sometimes the conservative view or the prohibitive view. But you know what, there's other scholars that say natural natural is actually an idiom in the original Greek to mean customary. It's not customary. In other words, our culture doesn't permit this. So there's all these questions again. I'm not necessarily going to answer, the, answer that for you, but these are the questions that start coming up. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in, them, received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Question, why is the description for men different from what it is for women? Why is the description for men about shameful acts, but it is for women something very different? So when we use the modern word homosexual to describe this huge, overriding, encompassing term, why is it that Romans 1 seems to be doing something different in its language? Those are some of the questions that should be popping up. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy, which is exactly what describes every single gay person I know. (laughs) Does this make sense? Now Paul is going to, in addition to what it is that they've done there sexually, now they've also done all these other things. What's Paul doing these are the questions that we should be asking. And again, when I, when I hear talks on Romans 1, there's this sense that it is the plain, clear teaching of Scripture. And what I want to share with you is, I don't know if the Bible is that boring. <laughs> because that's what the word plain means. It means boring. There are some questions that we should be asking. And questions that we want to ask and want to know. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same thing. Oh my goodness. Wait a second. Are you telling me Romans 1 was just a setup? Yeah, Paul was saying, hey, you know all those people out there? Yeah, they're horrible, they're mean, they're evil, they disobey their parents, all this stuff. And everybody in the room was going, that's right, those people out there, how dare they? Shame on them. And then in chapter 2, something turns. You, you who judge and pass judgment on someone else, you're condemning yourself. I never, or I hardly ever hear Romans 2 talked about in comparison and conjunction with Romans 1. And some scholars would suggest to you that Romans 1 really isn't an argument for a particular moral ethic. Romans 1 is a setup. Those of you who think that you are all righteous, guess what? You're not righteous because your judgment and condemnation of other people has kept you from the righteousness that God so desires from you. Why? Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing, and this is one of the most beautiful passages, that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. And there at the very end of the summation of no matter where you are on all of that, it is God's kindness that is leading you towards repentance. Now, I've just given you a few of the questions that we should be asking. Just a few. There's a ton more and hundreds of pages by which we can get into that. Are you okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, really quickly, and then we'll break for dinner. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men. Now, this is one of those, what's known as vice lists. It's a list of things that are behaviors or people that are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Again, one of the questions we should be asking is what is the translation and why did they translate it there? There's two words that are used in this phrase. If you notice the footnote, the two words are malakoi and arsenokoitai. There's a lot of etymology that goes behind it. Some suggest that malakoi is literally the word that means soft or squishy. And arsenicoitai is a combination word that means man or better. It's also where, the, where we get the word coitus, or it's where we get the word intercourse. So here we have a phrase that comes from two words that the NIV has scrunched together to mean this. But is it that simple? Is that the plain reading of the text? All of you at this point should be going, uh-uh. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in the New Revised Standard Version uses the word male prostitutes and sodomites. The New American Standard Bible uses the word effeminate and homosexuals. The King James Version uses the word effeminate and abusers of themselves with mankind. Now, let me tell you something. When we use the term homosexual or when we use the term sexual identity, that is very, very different from the term abuse. And notice how this, the King James translates this abusers. The Geneva Bible translates this wantons nor buggers. (laughs) It's a 1599 translation. By the way, I looked up wantons just to make sure I got my (laughs) definition right. (laughs) That seems quite appropriate. Deliberate, willful, malicious, spiteful, wicked, cruel. And the Young's uh, Literal Translation, Effeminate Sonoma. If you take a look at the history of translation in this word, 1525, 1587, 1729, you start to see that even in these terms, it's really hard to get to what exactly does this mean. And once the 1900s come around, a new term enters into our vocabulary. That term is the word homosexual which did not exist prior to the 1900s because it's a whole new term and a whole new category. So when you take a look at this, interpreting passages like this is not that plain and simple. Part of the reason is the word arsenikoitai. And remember, context is important, how it's used and the things that you put around it. Arsenikoitai isn't used anywhere else in ancient Greek literature. In other words, what most scholars would suggest to you is that Paul made it up to describe something and a meaning and a category that may actually be lost to us. And scholars are working really hard to try to figure out what does this mean. Okay, I need to sew it up, and then we need to have dinner. Regarding Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6 and all the other things, it fundamentally comes down to this question. Is what they were talking about then what we are talking about now? And most of the authors that are writing are fundamentally asking and addressing this question. Is what they were talking about then what we are talking about now? Now, if what they are talking about then is equal to what we're talking about now, those who are on the restrictive side of the interpretation are like, see, it's very clear. But there's also another voice that says, I think what they're talking about has to do with prostitution, abuse, Power, cultural identity, things that don't have an equation to what we're talking about now today. And if that's the case, then we can still be on board with, I'm against people who abuse other people. I'm against people who leverage sex for financial gain. I'm against people who are going to treat other people as second-class citizens sexually. Does this make sense? So those who are on the progressive side oftentimes want to kick the Bible out and say, well, then just forget the whole thing. And again, what I'm trying to do or hope that we can do is hold both of these intention, tension and listen to the other side. And again, the answer to this question is what they are talking about then, what we're talking about now, all comes down to context and our context and their context and the lens through which we are viewing the scriptures. Now, somebody is going to say, but isn't this God's divinely inspired, inerrant word of God? Now, let me just simply say, I can affirm this statement. Uh, Here at Spark, and my entire life, has been spent studying, researching, and teaching, which is a very daunting task, by the way, this beautiful book. And if you've been at Spark, you know we started in Genesis, and we've spent three years just teaching through this amazing book, which includes some very difficult passages, this question that comes up, but isn't this God's divinely inspired inerrant word of God? If you answer the question, yes, it is, then I'm going to suggest and propose to you, how much more important is it? How much more important is it then that we lay down our biases, lay down our lenses, and try to listen deeply to what it is that God was trying to communicate to us? If you believe this, then my encouragement to you is, then get to work. We got some work to do. Which means we take our lenses, recognize that they are there, cast them aside, and start to study. We hold some humility. I might be wrong. I might be seeing this differently. I might have been approaching this through a lens that God never intended me to approach this through. And you know what? I need my community. That person over there that doesn't believe the same thing that I believe, in fact, says things that ultimately like, are cringeworthy to my spirit, I actually need them. I need to listen to them. I need to hear them. And I need their stories to influence mine. And ultimately, we need to love. Now, I'd like to spend a whole another hour just talking about the hermeneutics of love. But fundamentally, the hermeneutics of love is the idea that if you truly love a text then you will lay your life down for it, including your opinions, your biases, the things that you are bringing to it, to let the text speak to you in new and fresh ways. That's what love is.